Uh, hello everybody, and uh, welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, review of the year 2012, part 2. Uh, I'm Joe Gastineau, and joining me as always is uh, Ed Davis. How are you doing, sir? Very, very well. Thank you very much. I'm enjoying this uh, Hobbit style of uh, ending the year, dividing our <laughs> final episode up into three distinct parts. Yeah, we're going to release this part next Christmas, and then <laughs> <laughs> then in the summer the year after. Um, we're going to talk about... Um, the very worst of 2012 uh, in, in the kind of what happened in films um, because we're going to spend the next part of this roundup uh, fellating our favourite films of the year um, and lauding them with praise so we thought we'd get the kind of negativity out of the way first by busting out um, you know, what we considered to be uh, disappointments or just downright shit films we'll also talk about what irked us this year in uh, the film world generally um, so it, we just we talked last last week about you know 2012 being a kind of you know so so year not as much kind of breakout successes but there was certainly a couple of breakout flops in terms of good old fashioned Ishtar cutthroat island style bombs the first of which was uh, John Carter a man who now will be ubiquitous with uh, cinematic failure um, where did it all go wrong Ed? Um, it's kind of hard to say really I mean people have been trying to make John Carter of Mars or just John Carter as it was eventually renamed uh, for since almost the dawn of cinema really I'm sure there were earlier versions but people have been trying to make the sort of big special effects-y version similar to what we saw um, for, for years and years and years and it's been a big uh, passion project of Andrew Stanton the directors and I think it's kind of a case of uh, giving someone enough rope to hang themselves with, really. I think they gave them too much freedom because, you know, and with uh, good reason, because obviously Stanton directed Finding Nemo and Wall-E, both of which are great films. It was Mm -hmm. co-written by Mark Andrews, who's a sort of Pixar honcho, also went on to co-direct Brave this year, and um, Michael Chabon, who obviously is a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, writer of some fantastic books that you and I have talked at length about on the podcast before. Yep. And with that sort of creative team, you kind of think that, you know, okay, they'll probably do a, they'll be, they'll be good. But I think they kind of got lost in the mechanics of the plot and didn't really focus too much on the story. Because there's a lot that happens in John Carter, but it doesn't really unfold in a very interesting way. Um, Film Crit Hulk wrote a very, very long and insightful and uh, very entertaining dissection of everything that's wrong with John Carter on a story level. And I think that that played a big part in why it didn't connect with audiences. But I think in terms of why it didn't make money, because there's kind of a big difference between connecting with an audience and and making money because the film can if a film opens big enough it will kind of have enough momentum to carry it to profitability um as we'll probably see with the hobbit over the coming weeks um the uh i think the problem there was they changed the name which is the sort of thing that kind of permeates beyond just the kind of people who are really interested in the the, the film business because you kind of think well why have they changed the name? It's, that's just really weird. And uh, also changed it from John Carter of Mars, which is distinctive to just the most generic name imaginable. Mm. You know, people of a certain age might think, oh, they've made a film about the guy from ER, great. And mm. the um, and so that was a big problem. And then the trailers kind of, for it, the advertising didn't really seem to do a good job of selling the spectacle of the film, which is really all that it had going for it in a lot of ways, was how sort of visually spectacular it was and the action and everything, and it completely failed to get that across. It also kind of failed to get across the character of John Carter or the story that well. And in the end, you know, people didn't really... weren't impressed enough by what they were seeing to kind of go out and see it. And so even though there's there's kind of a hardcore of people who have got behind the film since it came out and kind of want to have it reassessed as kind of a, a misunderstood kind of gem, which uh, I don't kind of truck with at all. The, uh, I think in not, in those people didn't go out to see it in the cinema because they just weren't really interested 
in it because of the trailers and everything and only checked out later so there wasn't ever that kind of vocal fan base didn't come out to actually see the film in the first place which obviously limited its ability to spread as a word of mouth hit which kind of after its soft opening was the only the only hope it had really that was the long explanation the short explanation was that it was fucking rubbish yeah I think I think that's that folds into my one as well yeah yours is yours would look better on a poster if films put uh, (laughs) critical reviews on their posters it was it wasn't great was it Ed it was I remember um, I went to see it at um, the opening of the new IMAX screen in the the kind of Sheffield Cine world and um, it was just a depressing affair from kind of start to finish because the, that screen's got like you know five six hundred seats it's a huge screen and there was maybe about 80 people in it and they brought out like the senior vice president from Cine World from America who was doing a kind of you know, an introductory speech about how great it was and there was like free sushi and stuff and it was a free bar beforehand and uh, I met this, I met the kind of, um, one of these kind of European marketing executives from Disney beforehand who said, oh, you know, drop us your email, uh, drop us your review once you've written it. (laughs) And as soon as that had finished, I was just like, dude, man, you don't want to read my my review of this. (laughs) That is, that is a fucking stinker. And like, it it was, I think, just to kind of... um, boil it down I think in my review I said that like it was just too weird to be awful but it just wasn't weird enough to be any good yeah it's not it's not a bland or film or one that lacks imagination it's just kind of it's just kind of flat really in its weirdness and there's so many there's so many instances of it where it could have been a bit more interesting but it decides to revert to a a kind of uh, a cliche as it were, and there's so many bits of it that just don't make any sense whatsoever. And uh, I, you know, we we've talked at length about Taylor Kitchen, you know how great he is. But um, you imagine that any if Kurt Russell had played that role in the 80s, you would totally have got away with that because no one sells a fish out of water better than Kurt Russell. Um, it would have been a markedly different film. Um, but it was just a, an absolute hodgepodge of. It wasn't even like oh, this is more interesting than watching, you know. Uh, at the sixth entry of a long-running franchise, it was just, it was just wrong-headed from start to finish. Yeah, it reminded me a lot of Prince of Persia, the video game adaptation from a few years ago, where the key problem with that one was that you essentially had a very sort of cliched fantasy hero story, and and you know, I mean, like the the problem with John Carter obviously is it's a hugely influential book, and so it seems cliched because it invented a lot of things that people have since used as the basis for a lot of other stories. You know, like Star Wars in particular is, and uh, Avatar both owe an awful lot to John Carter of Mars. And I think what you kind of see uh, in both those films, in that and Prince of Persia, is that they don't really add a character in there that adds sort of flavour to the sort of blandness of the central lead in the same way that, for example, Han Solo adds a lot of flavour to Star Wars. Mm. So, like, if you try and imagine Star Wars about Han Solo, it'd be sort of interminable because Luke is a very, very boring central character. He's kind of... The only interesting thing about him is he's very easy to identify with as someone who's never really done much special in his life and he's kind of just sort of a star... Literally a stargazer who wants to sort of go out and do great things. And that's relatable, but it's not necessarily that interesting. And there's very little that Luke Skywalker does in any of the Star Wars films that makes him, like, a particularly interesting character, or at least not until the second one. But mm. as soon as, you know, Han Solo shows up and he's just, like, he's, like, delightful. And he's a, he's a rogue and he's really, really fun to kind of watch and to be around because he's got sort of a little bit of a dark edge and there's a similar sort of character in Prince of Persia played by Alfred Molina who shows up way too late into that film um, he shows up like um, sort of maybe like uh, over an hour in after by which point everyone's just kind of like gone, oh why kill me um, <laughs> at least that's why I was <laughs> shouting but you know in, there's no character like that there's the dog I guess yeah the, the kind of six six legged toad dog that goes who's, at a supersonic speed. Who's amazingly cute and horrifying, which is a difficult. Yeah. It's a difficult trick to pull off, but he manages it. Yeah, um, it was also um, 
uh, I found it very hard. I mean, the, the central character of John Carter was very, very difficult to relate to, but once you realised he was basically invincible, that mm. he could fly through the air and, you know, kill five, six hundred enemies all at once, he does commit, a, like, a genocide in one scene, yeah. um, then you, you, there's not really a lot at stake, is there? Yeah, and also, that scene's also where they kind of have that really effective, but far too late sequence in which they intercut him slaughtering with the scene of him burying his family. Mm. And you kind of get the feeling that, as inventive as that was, if you had kind of got a sense of the the sort of the death of the family and how much it had affected him near the beginning, his character would have been sort of fundamentally altered. And yeah. he would have been a much more interesting protagonist. But because they wait until her, like, very, very far into that very long film, um, it just has less of an effect than it would have otherwise. And it was, you called it, actually, Ed, in our preview episode, uh, in at the very start of this year, you said uh, that John Carter would be the first flop of the year, and hot dang, you were right. I am the Nate Silver of this podcast. Yeah, the the Notre Dame <laughs> of, uh, of, of podcasting. Um, in terms of uh, the other big flop of the year, or the, certainly the one that springs to my mind, was actually a film I was very much looking forward to on the basis of the trailer alone and without actually knowing um, too much about the film. Um, but this was also you know, a massive flop, but also a massive turd <laughs> in terms of a film. It was awful. Uh, Rock of Ages. Uh, did you see it? I did, yeah. That was on my list of, uh, of worst films of the year. That one... It's awful. Absolute fucking stinker. Whereas you, you looked at it on the trailer, and I didn't know anything about the, the kind of musical. It's based on it, on what, you know, in, us in the theatre trade call a jukebox musical, rather than, you know, written songs. It's existing songs shaped around a narrative. Um, I thought that, you know, uh, Tom Cruise, Alec Baldwin, Russell Brand, Paul Giamatti, uh, it could be a lot of fun. It was the total opposite of a lot of fun. It was... Uh, Horrible. Yeah, just I can't really think of too many redeeming features about it. No, I think those. I remember uh, going to see it and being much the same as you, where I kind of thought the worst this is going to be is sort of like camp. You know, it's going to be the sort of thing where you watch it and you think, ah, it's crap, but they're all having fun, sort of in a mm. kind of way that, you know, like Mamma Mia is. Like, Mamma Mia is not a very good film, but you kind of get the sense that everyone on screen is really committed to mm. the music of Abbott. Um, in a way that is terrifying to behold. <laughs> um, and you kind of think that that is not the worst way to kind of spend sort of an hour and a half or two hours in theatre is watching people have a, like, a really fun time on screen in a film that's not 100% good. Mm. Uh, and it just wasn't very interesting. Like, the, the vocal performances were fine, but the, they were staged in a way that was kind of a little too clean to be camp. Um, and a little too serious. They were really, really, they really took that shitty music seriously. It doesn't help that those songs are not very, very good at all. Um, you know, I'm not a fan of that sort of 80s hard rock kind of thing that they kind of um, idolise in that movie. So obviously that's kind of a non-starter for me. But even so, like, there's a way for, for performers or a story to kind of interweave those sort of things and make it fun which just didn't, just didn't happen in Rock of Ages. And I also found, I also found, this is probably more a problem with the musical than the film, but I just found the kind of, the pacing of it so strange, because it's basically a let's put on a show kind of thing, because they're trying to save the bar and everything, which is the hoariest old um, cliched musical story imaginable. But, you know, that's kind of what it's shooting for, I guess. But they save the bar and then they have to kind of come up with a really awkward thing of like Paul Giamatti stealing a load of money for it to then be on the brink of bankruptcy again so they have to try and get Stacey Jacks back again and it's mm. just I just found it to be so so awkward the way that it kind of it kind of moved forward and then kind of fell back and then moved forward a bit more and fell back and then every time uh, the like the, the central leads were just really bland I thought Cruz did a good job, but he was kind of in service of nothing, really. Yeah, that character he was playing was kind of like what someone who doesn't know anything about anything would think a rock and roll star would be. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't mm -hmm. like, you know, a real Motley Crue-style kind of absolute filthy bastard. It was no. a kind of... Uh, 
oh, I've got a bottle of Jack Daniels in my hand, I'm talking in riddles type, six form poetry style, rock god, which, it, you know, bears, it was just, it was so limp, wasn't it, as a film? It was just so kind of like 12A. Absolutely, yeah, it just, it didn't have any real bite to it. I mean, not that you should expect kind of a glossy, fairly big budget musical to have much bite, but a little bit of something just to kind of take the edge of the cheesiness would have would have sufficed and there just wasn't any to there it was just it, it was just so limp and without any sort of it was a, it was a spherical film no edges mm. <laughs> it was very kind of smooth like a kind of a clementine it was just you know not interesting at all um so yeah rightly so that bombed um but was there any other big bombs uh, in the year um, I think it's it gets to that point where it's kind of hard to qualify what a bomb is because of sort of international box office and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, even though like John Carter, which you already mentioned, was not very successful in the US worldwide, it it made it did reasonable amount of money, but you know Disney still wrote it off. They still wrote it off as a loss because they just realised they weren't going to make back their investment. Mm. Um, and the same thing is true of Battleship, which oh yeah flopped hard at the US like uh, even worse than John Carter which I don't think people were expecting because John Carter was already kind of like in the hole by the time Battleship came out and then Battleship came out and was like wow that did even worse mm. uh, which was impressive in its own way because and... Battleship was, was weirdly released in Britain about two or three months before it hit in US yeah it would, it would already done okay-ish worldwide by the time it hit the US but then it hit the US and uh, it was it it just did nothing at all uh, whatsoever and you kind of think uh, that that one probably does qualify as a flop but also kind of made a lot of money so it's kind of a weird one mm. um, and then there are other ones where there were films that underperformed but weren't necessarily flops like the fourth paranormal activity film has made i think at this point less than half of what its predecessors had but it still cost nothing to make Mm. like it still cost less than two million dollars to make and it's made something close to 50 or 60 million i think that's 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 a pretty good uh profit margin really Mm. It, but but also it's not anywhere near as good as a profit margin for any of the predecessors. Certainly not as good as the first one, which cost like ten thousand dollars and ended up make, making something like seventy or eighty million dollars. You know, mm-hmm. um, so I think there there were a few and similar same things sort of said about the Bourne Legacy or the Amazing Spider-Man, both of which did well-ish. You know, they both made um, a decent amount of money but both also shot under what their predecessors did by significant amounts. Like, The Bourne Legacy made about $100 million less than The Bourne Ultimatum. The Amazing Spider-Man made less than any of the other Spider-Men by at least $100 million. Even Spider-Man 3, which everyone kind of was uh, very down on. Um, So it was just very... I think there there were a lot of films this year that kind of skirt the edges of being flops by dint of the fact that they were, they didn't do as well as perhaps people th- thought or hoped they would. But when you kind of add everything up at the end of the day, they probably still made enough to justify their existence on the sort of the accounts ledger. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's the kind of the box office losers. In terms of um, critical losers and the films of which we deem to be kind of utterly terrible or, uh, you know, just terminally rotten. I mean, Rock of Ages was was definitely up there for me, of what, kind of the worst films uh, I've seen this year. What what was the worst film you saw this year? The worst film I saw was uh, The Woman in the Fifth, which was a film by uh, Pavel Pavlovsky, who mm-hmm. is the guy who directed uh, My Summer of Love, which is a very good film. Oh, that guy. Um, yeah, he, uh, he hadn't made a film for a while, I don't think, and then he came back with this film called The Woman in the Fifth, which is a film that stars uh, Ethan Hawke. I wanted to say Kevin Bacon because he's slowly morphing into Kevin Bacon. Right. Um, and weirdly, James Franco is morphing into uh, Ethan Hawke. It's very odd. Mm. Uh, in my head, anyway. 
Um, he plays this American writer who goes to Paris because that's where his ex-wife's gone with his daughter and there's these hints that he's kind of been abusive or something in the past that he's, he's kind of a bad guy deep down. Um, but you, there's not... Uh, and he ends up kind of going on the run. He gets all of his passport and everything stolen so he ends up working for this shady businessman who also rents him a room um, and then he meets uh, Christian Scott Thomas, who kind of seduces him, uh, and it's 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 kind of an okay, sort of uh, arty, slightly pretentious uh, thriller until about the last twenty minutes, when it's suddenly revealed that uh, Christian Scott Thomas is a figment of his imagination, and she's been dead for twenty years. And at which point, I was just kind of like, if I hadn't been if there hadn't been other people in the cinema, I would have literally shouted, "Oh fuck off!" Because <laughs> it was it was such the like the hoariest, old, most dull uh, twist imaginable. Just like you just kind of think, "Oh, this is just terrible." It may and and but it was so serious about it. It, mm. it was so uh, convinced of its own sort of like worth and importance that I just kind of sat there and I just like I just kind of thought oh, I can't believe that this film that was up until that point you know reasonably atmospheric and and sort of did some some interesting things but you know it just kind of got to a point where I just I just kind of threw up my hands and just thought oh this is this is so awful it's too serious to be like fun mm. but too ridiculous to take seriously it was absolutely you know without sort of merit. I didn't even ever hear of this film. Did it kind of just drop off the face of the earth after it kind of yeah, released? Yeah, it's, it's one of the most read reviews on my site of the year because right. lots of other people apparently had the same reaction as me, which was just to watch it and just be kind of, just like absolutely despise it. But not a lot of people saw it, but a lot of, all those people kind of hated it. It's kind of the reverse of the Velvet Underground's first album. Um, you know... <laughs> It just inspires real hate and vitriol in a very small number of people who have experienced it. And rightly so, it's a dreadful film. Absolutely awful. Oh, wow, I'll have to, I'm, I'm fasc- I feel fascinated. If you hadn't ruined that twist for me now, Ed, and for the... For the- it's, hard, it's hard to get across why it's terrible. That was the thing in my review. Like, when I wrote my review, I just started up saying, like, I'm going to give away the ending because I can't get across how awful this film is unless <laughs> I tell you how it ends. Uh, and that was kind of the only way to kind of go about it. But I did kind of, I did say, you know, if you don't want to read further, then, you know, don't. Go and see the film if you want to, but I would recommend not. Mm. Um, and then went into kind of dip it, describing why everything about it is terrible, but you know that's also you know the performances are good, but it's it's you know it's they're good at the service of absolute shit, you know. So it's kind of like you, it's hard to kind of recommend the performances when everything around it is just dreadful. Wow. So so Woman of the Fifth, you know, that would be my worst of the year by by some considerable margin. I've not seen anything that even remotely compares. I think we we were missing this year an absolute kind of Transformers three style stinker. I mean, Battleship was terrible, and um, for all all its kind of, um, I think people talking about the saving grace of Battleship is that it's Peter Berg, and Peter Berg has got clearly he's a clearly talented person, but it was kind of Transformers light. It was every, every even like right down to you know the sound effects they use that kind of sound effect that is on all the fat chat it was in there um and it was kind of horrible but it, it still wasn't transformers 3 bad so you have to really look for your flops uh, for your uh your cinematic tripe this year and um my worst film of the year um was red tails oh the george lucas produced uh from about just a year man yeah, it was. Um, I, um, I had to do uh, my kind of best and worst films for for another website um, uh, this week, and I just said it was well-meaning but utterly, utterly shit. And that is exact. It was like a Hallmark movie, right, with a budget <laughs> and <laughs> and half the cast of The Wire, and everything about it was absolutely abhorrent. It was. Um, um, Terribly, terribly written, terribly acted. Some amazing actors, like I say, the aforementioned wire actors plus Cuba Gooding Jr., who uh, you know 
is the seal of quality of any film. Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, kind of mawkish. It was they tried to make it a bit of a blocker, kind of a boy's own adventure type thing, which would have been great had it managed to kind of see that through. Um, but it just it just kind of descends into kind of the worst cliched war film stuff you could imagine. There's a kind of scowling Nazi pilot who's just like, oh, I, oh, I, I can't even begin at how inept that is. I mean, I don't really know what of it is George Lucas's because I know that he took it off Anthony Hemingway, I think, is the director of it, um, to kind of do some other stuff with it. But I don't, I'm not sure if he did reshoots or whatever. Um, but I mean, it's just so. Like cliche to the point where, like, because it's about the Tuskegee Airmen. And for those of you who don't know, a kind of all-black regiment of airmen who fought in World War Two, um, and there's there's a bit where, like, you know, the white pilots they don't like them at first, and there's hostility, but as their uh, you know achievements start to grow, they uh, begrudgingly respect them, and then all of a sudden they see them as their equals. Um, which I'm pretty sure didn't happen in real life. <laughs> I'm pretty sure yeah, yeah, yeah. those guys were kind of ground down with kind of relentless racism. Yeah, there's a really good HBO movie from many years ago, which I believe stars Lawrence Fishburne, mm-hmm. which covered... called the, was it called the Tuskegee Airmen? Yes. Yeah, I've which, seen it. Uh, yeah, which is does the same sort of thing, but being sort of not uh, the passion project of a hack, mm-hmm. uh, kind of. Uh, handles all of that stuff with a lot more grace and a lot, a lot more insight than uh, I would imagine. I mean, I haven't seen Red Tails, but you should. I'm guessing that it lacks, uh, it lacks the subtlety of George Lucas's other work. <laughs> it certainly does, and it is. Um, I think it was really disingenuous because George Lucas went to bat for that film, didn't he? He went on a lot of um, chat shows and stuff, and I remember he went on the Daily Show with John Stewart, and he was saying, you know, the reason that Hollywood is scared of black movies, and you know, he said no one will go and see this because it's a black cast and all this, and he was, you know, what he was saying was, um, you know, that kind of uh, racism is is, is kind of. Uh, institutionalised in Hollywood and you know that's the reason this has struggled to get to screen but in actual fact it's under all of that it was just a fucking terrible film <laughs> which was you know disingenuous by him to do that I think yeah disingenuous by him and disrespectful to the uh, to the actual story which probably deserved a lot better plus if you look into the history of it the story wasn't actually that interesting oh it's good it's like you know oh there was a regiment of like you know black airmen who did all this stuff but like they weren't allowed to do a lot of stuff they had shit planes they didn't really do well you know what I mean yeah. <laughs> it was kind of you know it sounds like something that would make for a grand bit of uh, storytelling and he has or whoever's written it has kind of uh, padded it out to a uh, you know give the, give it a lot more kind of uh, uh, action and kind of daring do as it were but um, it's just it's just horrible. It's like Biggles the movie. It's terrible. I think in terms of um, other film, I think there's probably um, the elephant in the room, and I'm pretty sure we haven't voted for it in our top twenties. I'd imagine uh, is um, Prometheus, the film yes. that came out in the middle of the year. That uh, I think you mentioned on another podcast that you respected in many ways, and but in other ways, kind of uh, really, really didn't like. And I felt exactly the same way. And there were some some bits of that film where I kind of watched it and kind of thought well I'll tell you what that's that's quite beautiful and then the next minute I was literally eating my own hands <laughs> it was yeah. um, it was it wasn't good was it no it wasn't on average I think I probably had more the thing that I the thing that I kind of take away from Prometheus is that I probably had more conversations about it than any other film that's come out this year more kind of interesting and in-depth conversations and I've met, read more interesting and in-depth uh analysis of it over the last year than any of the films I actually liked mm-hmm. um, which has got to be worth something but on average I think it's I do think it's a really terrible film but one that's made with unbelievably amazing craft yeah you know it's it's really bizarre like visually it's astonishing it's a really really beautiful film um, you know it's it's very very well directed for the most part um, there are some, there are like big ideas kind of driving it that are really, that are, are really, can be really engaging, but the nuts and bolts of the storytelling is just so egregiously bad. It's really mm. hard to, it's, it, it, it is impossible to overlook them 
for me and actually kind of enjoy the film as a result. Everything that kind of happens in the film distracts from the good stuff because um, the characters are essentially... It's, it's essentially... It kind of puts itself out there as kind of an, an intellectual sci-fi film that's got these kind of big, bold ideas at its, at its heart about the relationship of man and with God and the place in the universe and what happens if, you know, you find God and God hates you, which I think is a really interesting idea that is very poorly explored in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it has all of that stuff in there, but then you've got it centred around these bunch of unlikable characters who are essentially extras from a shitty slasher film. You're, uh, you're, you're being a bit too uh, generous to call them characters, Ed, I think. Yeah, these kind of meat bags that kind of wander around the film to get killed, uh, that have no sort of consistency in character. They don't say anything interesting. They don't do anything interesting. The most in- the, the way they're kind of most interesting are things like the, the android played by Michael Fassbender, who um, the, the guys from Red Letter Media did this very very funny video where they just asked all the questions that they had about the um, about the film in a really kind of like deadpan way they just listed all the things that didn't make sense and my favourite one was talking about Michael Fassbender and saying why did he put the the black goo in that guy's drink in the hope that he would have sex with his his wife and then form an alien baby how do you know that was happened is he an expert in things that have never happened <laughs> um, yeah. which are kind of like that was kind of the thing that in the back of my mind kind of like was, was kind of got to the heart of it is that there are loads of things that happen in this in that film that just make no sense on a you know there's, there's something to be said for ambiguity and kind of making thinking you know making narrative leaps but then there's also you know, narrative leaps over, like, the Grand Canyon, which is what mm. that film expects you to kind of do, to kind of, to bridge kind of two points that are so vastly separated that it would be impossible to you to do it. And I think that's, that's that for me is what is the major problem with Prometheus from a story point of view. Yeah, I mean, the script is, is, is rotten as anything, isn't it? I mean, some of the, the foreshadowing in that, like, where they're just walking around the medical deck and they were like... Oh, you've got a, I don't know, I can't remember the name of the machine, but it's basically an Abortomatic 3000. Oh, a, mach- a machine that does surgery, you don't really need anyone, you can just get in and perform any operation you want. That'll mm. be handy when I need an abortion later. It was yeah. just kind of, um, it, I, as soon as I saw that, I just got my head kind of, like, sunk. And in Aliens, there's a great bit of foreshadowing where, like, with the power loader, <laughs> that's classic mm. foreshadowing, that's kind of foreshadowing 101, but... That was fucking lazy as anything. Yeah. I tell you what, the the thing that's probably a, I mean, I don't really read a lot about films. <laughs> I'm not interested. But um, um, the thing that kind of really just got to me at the end of that film is why on earth was it a film in the Alien franchise? Yeah, because it really doesn't have anything to do with it. Yeah, it appeared to be, um, you know, a film about uh, some kind of space explorers going off exploring our origins as a species with an alien film tagged onto it and worse than that in I'll, the last I'll, sort of 10 seconds yeah I'll, I'll admit to this Ed that um, when I was about 11 or 12 I used to write my own episodes of Red Dwarf right I used to take the characters and I used to write my own episodes of popular British sitcom Red Dwarf um, the alien part of that storyline of Prometheus reminds me of the alien film I would have written when I was 11 or 12. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And it's like someone who'd written a kind of semi-interesting kind of sci-fi film about the origins of man and just wedged my 11-year-old alien script into it. And that's what Prometheus is. Well, the the, the, the genesis of, of Prometheus is quite, uh, is quite complex, but I think that's more or less what happened. It started out as being sort of a separate idea that then they kind of grafted alien elements onto it to get it funded, because I think Ridley Scott liked kind of the ideas in it. Mm. Um, and then it was just, yeah, it just it just doesn't work, those kind of things grafted onto each other. And, um, yeah, it's just a really... It's just a really uh, dreadful waste of, A, um, the alien mythos, which has already been shat over enough really, mm-hmm. but they kind <laughs> yeah. of found another way to kind of really irritate people who are fans of the franchise with that. Mm. But also of a really interesting ideas-driven sci-fi film, which maybe wouldn't have got made if it wasn't connected to an established property in even the most tangential way. But mm. 
may have turned out better if it wasn't connected to that that franchise. If it didn't have the kind of people kind of how do we cram more HR Giga style imagery into this um, and all all of that. And it's just yeah, it's just really. It's it's disappointing more than anything else, Prometheus, because there are so many things in it that stop it just short of being great. But mm. in stopping it, they also then they stop it just short of being great and then sort of drag it all the way down into being terrible. Yeah. Uh, so it's this it's it's a it's a it's a bizarre one really. Um, there was also quite a lot. of I mean, this is a trend that kind of continued through the year, and something that really bugged me is Prometheus had such kind of crazy levels of PR stuntery, didn't they? They had kind of trailers for trailers, teasers for trailers. There was a kind of uh, a video release that said, oh, there's going to be a teaser. So it was a kind of a teaser for a teaser, which was a teaser for a trailer, which was a trailer for a film. Yeah. <laughs> which, and there was kind of interactive videos where you could ask Michael Fassbender stuff. Uh, and it was overkill, wasn't it? It really was. It was. I mean, like, th- fortunately that trend hasn't really caught on outside of Prometheus. There was kind of something for that with the first trailer for Spielberg's Lincoln, where they kind of did a little thing announcing that they were going to release the trailer for it. Mm. But uh, the fact that it's been done for two films is is enough, really. Trailers already are... They they tell you too much of the film and they're kind of a, a necessary evil of trying to get people to see a film. And occasionally you'll get something like the trailer for, you know, A Serious Man from a few years ago which is kind of its own delightful bit of art in its mm. own way because it's so weird and kind of gets across the tone of the film without really telling you anything about what it's about. Um, so occasionally you'll get something that's actually interesting in the form of a trailer. But the idea of kind of teasing out details of these or- these necessary evils just seems like a step too far, really. Yeah, it really does. Um Anything else that popped into your mind? Because, I mean, I've got a long list of terrible films I've seen this year. What have you got? Uh, the number two film on my list was Prometheus. Um, mm-hmm. The number three film on my list of uh, worst films I've seen this year, and I think you and I might disagree on this one, was uh, another Michael Fassbender film that was released at the start of the year. It's a much acclaimed, called Shame. The uh, shame, on, shame on you, Ed. Shame on say, me. Shame on me. Uh, yeah. Shame, more like sham. Um, worst worst date movie ever. Yeah, yeah, because you sit there and watch an incredibly attractive man with a massive cock have sex, Wait, and then and then we go and see the film. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I was going to say, like for me, it's just a preview of the later in the evening <laughs> for them. But it's a tra- it's a teaser for the trailer. Yeah, <laughs> I just I just didn't get on with it at all. Again, with like Prometheus, it's an amazingly well, it's an amazing looking film. Like Steve McQueen is. A, a brilliant visual artist. Mm. I think there are sequences like my favourite sequence in that whole film is just him running down the street, which is just kind of so beautifully shot and just for, like from a, from a sort of a formal standpoint, it just looks so amazing. But I just I just couldn't care less about the story. And the reason why I couldn't care less was brilliantly summed out by Doug Stanhope in an episode of Louie, where mm. he's he's making he goes on stage and he's doing a stand-up routine about sex addiction, and he says um, something along the lines of. You know, you know, watching a, you know, someone having sex a lot isn't a sex addiction. You know, someone fucking a chicken's a sex addiction. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think that that's kind of the thing that I didn't buy with Shane was just kind of like, he's like, oh, sex addiction's so bad. He just has sex with all these really attractive women. It's kind of like, that's, I'm, I'm not really seeing why this is too much of a problem. Yeah, it, it's like uh, Tiger if, Woods. Tiger Woods wasn't like fucking a rusty keyhole, was he? He was yeah. sticking it to kind of models and stuff. And and it seems that if you're if you're an attractive man, you're a sex addict. If you are kind yeah. of like a, a horrible fat old bloke, you're just a dirty arsehole. Yeah, exactly. I think that's kind of that. That was where I couldn't get off. It's, it's a very it's kind of a superficial thing, but I do think it it speaks to the the, the deeper problems with the film. That for me, that essentially it's a very very superficial viewpoint of addiction. Mm. That kind of doesn't. It only really kind of gets into that when he, he does that thing where he like goes to a gay club and uh, has sex with a man and stuff like that. Where you kind of like this. This is closer to the idea of this guy just having being like so compulsive that he does things that are out of character for the rest of his life. Yeah, because, you know he's not he's not gay. 
He just no. wants to have. He just has a compunction to have sex, and then if uh, men or women, you know, it doesn't kind of matter if he he falls into that kind of urge and that sort of sense of depression. But by the point in the film that it actually happens, you know, you just kind of think this is really lurid and kind mm. of exploitative but filmed so classily that there's kind of a disconnect between the two, and it's not a disconnect that I personally was comfortable with. I thought that it was, try- it was trying to have its cake and eat it by appearing very, very serious, whilst actually being very leery, which kind mm. of seemed what, what the tone that they were going for, um, or, or at least the, the treatment of the material. You know, they were going for moving, but I don't think that that was actually the way that it came across. Yeah, it was a very difficult film to like, and I remember not liking it whilst I was watching it. Um, but when uh, after I turned it off <laughs> and uh, cleaned myself up, <laughs> um, then uh, I started. It stayed kind of stuck with me. Um, <laughs> God, it was like it was, it was like a Jack Corner film. It was so good, you just had to sit in it. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's. Um, I actually liked it the more I think about it, and it, and I think because I also don't buy a lot of the sex addiction stuff, um, and if I I kind of was able to tune out of that, and and like you say, see it as a story of compulsion and of someone who is just, you know, a massive massive cock basically, um, and I found that more rewarding than <laughs> than, and I I started to think as well where the whole sex addiction thing, there was a big deal made of it when it came out. Was that just a PR thing? Because, mm. I mean, I don't think that McQueen came out explicitly and said, this is a film about a sex addict, it's not an issue film. Um, but, I mean, I, I I didn't love it, but I certainly didn't hate it. So, But on a, on a similar note, I think me and you are going to uh, cross swords on this one, um, because uh, I've read your review of this, and um, I can't believe you like Ted. <laughs> Yeah, I could see. You, yeah, you uh, bastard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one I can. Yeah, although I didn't put it number two of the year as the Guardian did. Peter Bradshaw, yeah. what the fuck is your problem? Yeah, I think you should explain yourself, Ed. Why did you love Ted so much? I d- I don't know if I loved it. I just had a really really good time in the cinema with it, and you know it was just it was. Just, I think, I I do think it was a a one off thing where you know I went to see it and I you know I had a good time. I laughed more than I have in a lot of you know recent comedies um uh, but and I I was I think I was just more impressed that it kind of actually felt and looked like a film which I wasn't expecting from Seth MacFarlane Mm -hmm. because his style is kind of anti-story anti sort of um anti sort of technical in a way you know Family Guy is not a very it's not a very good looking show it's not a very well written show it's essentially just very perfunctory way of stringing together a lot of disconnected jokes so I think just the mere fact that it was something that kind of had a coherent story um, that it had sort of a likeable lead in Mark Wahlberg and sort of an an anarchic kind of uh, best friend figure in Ted um, I think it, it all it, it worked for me more than it didn't, but I did say in my review that, it, that f- from my experience of it was that there were moments in it and sequences in it that I that I found were really really funny, and then they were kind of broken up by long stretches of nothing funny happening. Mm. Um, and I think when I was writing my review, I was remembering the funny moments more than I was remembering the long stretches of nothing happening. Well, I watched it on my own in my bedroom. And I have to say, I did not have a good time with it. <laughs> um, I I did one lol, which was, um, I don't know whether Seth MacFarlane does this a lot, but it was a joke unrelated to the plot of the film. What? Uh, it, was when <laughs> it was when they said, do you want to come back to our house and watch the Cheers extras on the Cheers DVDs? Because they all bitch about each other. And then it cuts to them watching an interview with Ted Danson, who just says the immortal line, Woody Harrelson, smallest penis of any human being I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> nothing to do with the plot, nothing to do with the characters, nothing to do with the story. But I, it made me lull. I like to hear uh, Ted Danson talking about Woody Harrelson's penis. Ted, um, Ted Danson's everywhere. I know, yeah, he's uh, ubiquitous. And they named the film after him, uh, <laughs> which was nice. But um, I found, there's something about that, because Seth MacFarlane will bill himself as someone who is not afraid to take the piss out of any minority group or mm. a, you know, anyone. He's happy to call himself, you know, someone who will, uh, you know, give everyone the uh, the same treatment. Now, the South Park guys also do that. I think they use the, the term 
uh, equal opportunities offenders is what they call themselves that you know no one is beyond their their kind of um, remit to take the piss out of but when the South Park guys do it you kind of can see the kind of mischief in it whereas when Seth MacFarlane does it some of the time I kind of think there's a nasty kind of undertone to this and Ted I felt like some of the jokes were like I'm not sure if I'm on board with this <laughs> really not right I completely understand that, and um, the guy from Ultraculture wrote a very good thing about it where he said that the problem with Ted and a lot of Seth MacFarlane's comedy is he's someone who punches downwards. He's someone right, who yeah. doesn't go for kind of social comedy, doesn't aim at sort of targets who can fend for themselves in the way that South Park do, the way that The Simpsons used to do it, you know, at its height. Where mm. essentially what you were doing, you would do is you would tackle the institutions of society. You would go after, you know, government. You'd go after um, sort of the the oppressors in some ways. You know, you'd go after people who can take it and who who basically have all the advantages in life and deserve to be mocked for it because they deserve. They don't deserve to be mocked for being successful, but they deserve to have their hypocrisies and everything and pointed out through the medium of comedy. Whereas what Seth MacFarlane does in Family Guy a lot. And definitely a lot in Ted, I would not dispute this. He basically goes after people who are sort of minorities, the disabled. And I think he does it because he's genuinely thinking, you know, I'm, I, I don't believe in political correctness. I don't believe you should, that anything is, is beyond being made fun of. But he just goes for very lazy jokes in a lot of ways. He goes for a lot of easy targets after, and after people who can't really defend themselves um, mm. in a way that doesn't offer any sort of insight. And... Uh, I think that that's that's very true. I mean, I don't. I I did. I'd stand by that review, and I did have a good time with it. But I can completely understand just basically someone being thinking the humour is just a complete non-starter. Mm. You know, I I I laughed enough to just. I think I gave it a B or something. You know, I I laughed enough to kind of have a good time in the cinema. But at the same time, I won't deny that it's that there are some things in it that are probably morally reprehensible. Mm. What, so what you're saying is, Ed, is you're wrong and I'm right. Uh, I'm saying we're both right in different ways. <laughs> Brilliant. What's uh, what else has uh, pissed you off this year? Uh, what else has pissed me off? Uh, there are a couple of films um, we've talked about really, like The Amazing Spider-Man, which was rubbish. Uh, Mirror Mirror, which was the first of two not very good um, Snow White reimaginings, but it was the shittier of the two. Um, <laughs> because it was a comedy and it wasn't funny. Um, oh. Whereas, you know, Snow White and the Huntsman was an epic adventure, uh, action-adventure film that was epic and had some action and some adventure. You know, it wasn't very... It wasn't necessarily good at those things, but it was better at them than Mirror Mirror was at being a comedy. Well, it, conv- it convinced uh, uh, Kirsten Stewart to uh, spread them for the director. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, yeah, that guy's she- a genius. She broke our Edward's heart. I know. I hope. I <laughs> first, she oh. broke. First, she broke Jacob's heart, and then she yeah. broke Edward's. Um, oh, but main, mainly this year, there were just there were films that I found quite disappointing. The ones that um, were critically very lauded, but which I I just found to be complete non-starters. The, the two that lead to mind were um, Taboo, the Miguel Gomez uh, film, Portuguese film which um, everyone kind of talked about as being like this romantic tribute to cinema. And I had pretty much the exact same problem with it that you and I both had with Hugo last year, which is Mm. that, you know, it's... It was shit. (laughs) It's a a romantic tribute to cinema first and a story second. And the problem with it for me, and I'm sure this is something that the people who like the film really like about it, is that it's essentially two stories. It's one that's set in modern-day Portugal... um, Lisbon, I believe, and uh, you know it's about these these old women who are friends, and it's kind of gentle and and unassuming, and then halfway through it switches to become telling this sort of the young the the, the younger years of one of the old of the women, and she's talk. It's all uh, described. It's all it's depicted like an old classic silent movie. It's very beautifully shot. It's really really lovely. But for me, that that narrative split was the point at which I just lost all interest in the film because I was in, I was involved in the life story in the story of the like the old the old women, 
because I liked them and I, I, I grew to know them and find them interesting over the for 45 minutes. And then as soon as it became about like the young like couple, the sort of the doomed romance, which you know is doomed because she's not together with the guy that she's uh, she's in love with when she's younger. I just completely lost all interest in it whatsoever, and the romance didn't do anything for me. It just seemed so staid and mm. and artificial. Um, the other one that a lot of people really got behind, and it, re- it was uh, it won a lot of awards at the the Biffers, the uh, British Independent Film Awards last weekend. Uh, incident incidentally, I do not disagree with the awards that it won. I think it deserved every single one. I still think it's a, it's not a very good film. Was Barbarian Sound Studio. You nearly said dreadful there. You nearly said dreadful. Huh? You nearly said dreadful there. Meh. Um, I also nearly said Barbarian Sound System because I, I think mm. in my head I can't I can't think of it without saying like like LCD Sound System. Just in the back of my head, it's always there. Um, yeah. inc- incidentally, um, show up and play the hits. The LCD Sound System was very very good. That was that was a highlight of the year for me. Um, it was kind of not. It wasn't quite good enough to make my top twenty. But uh, as someone who loved that band, I thought that was a that was a delight. But anyway, Bavarian Sound Studio <laughs> again, <laughs> studio um, was a sort of vaguely well, not vaguely, very David Lynch like um, horrorish inflected film in which Toby Jones played a sound man who goes to work for a shallow. Uh, horror film in the 70s he's like this very mild-mannered british sound engineer who's hired to come and work for this incredibly grisly and nasty um horror film that you don't really see much of and then as the film goes along he starts to unravel the film itself starts to unravel and it all goes a bit sort of uh a bit sort of persona and a bit a bit kind of like um uh, mulholland drive or or um, lost highway in a lot of ways and so a lot of Inland Empire, there's a lot of Inland Empire in there. And I love all of those films. I love um, David Lynch's sort of latter day period. I love Persona. I just watched um, Bavarian Sound System and I thought, it sounds amazing. Toby Jones is great. I've seen all of this stuff before. I've seen it done much better. And I was like, I was really, really excited to see it because everything about it just sounded cool. But when, it, but when I watched it, I was just, I was just so frustrated by how how much of a rip-off of better films it seemed how little um how how little uh engagement there was with the characters like they would they were just so because it had that sort of lynchian sort of like distance and surrealism to it it was actually no it had the distance it didn't have the surrealism which i think was that was its main problem is that it, it was kind of very arch but it didn't really have any kind of like distinguishing spark to it in the way mm. that Lynch's best work does, you know, it's like something like the uh, the Robert Blake character in Lost Highway, who's just unrelentingly weird and menacing, um, something like that. It needed it needed a spark, and it just completely didn't happen for me. So it was just a, a dry and, and a com- it was a completely intellectual experience. I sat there and just thought. Yeah, this is all very good. The sounds very well done. The effects are good. You know, Toby Jones very good. There's lots of references to classic Giallo films. It's all very concerned with the mechanics of filmmaking. But at the end of the day, I just kind of like I don't care. I don't care mm. about anything that's going on on screen at this moment. And that was that for me. That was probably one of the bigger disappointments of the year. Having not yet seen The Hobbit, we'll see how I feel about that if when I see The Hobbit. Yeah, uh, well, I didn't see either of those films that you were talking about, so um, I'm just going to ignore everything you've said Fair and um, uh, like them just okay. on principle. In terms of disappointments for me, um, I have to say that there's one that I'd kind of missed off my list when I was writing this because it was one of those films that's right at the start of the year, but actually had a UK release date in 2012 and therefore qualifies. Um, was The Descendants? I was really, really disappointed by The Descendants. Mm. It was a film in which we were asked to believe that um, a woman would cheat on George Clooney with Matthew Lillard. This is a bit of a stretch, isn't it? Mm, yes, because... Um, and also, I felt like... and I mean, it won a, 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 an Oscar for its screenplay, written by the um, veritable uh, Jim Rash um, from Community. Um, but I felt like it was one of the worst written films... Um, that 
Hang on, no, I would say worst written films of the year, but that's really harsh. Just like for a film that was lauded for its writing, it was really bad. It felt like the first half. I said this to a friend when I came out of it. Um, it felt like someone had left the audio book of the novelization of the film playing over the soundtrack because there was a for the first forty minutes there was a really heavy reliance on narration. Then that just disappears completely. And yeah. uh, for me, it wasn't dreadful by any means, but I, I came out of it just thinking, you know, that's that's not an Alexander Payne film that that I kind of expected or I kind of wanted. Yeah, I think I think I like it more than you, but I still think it's 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 a very it's a very weak. It's probably Alexander Payne's least interesting film, and mm-hmm. a, a lot of the problem with that is that they find the most awkward way of getting all of the exposition out of the way, which is that. Um, the opening, you know, narration, which is just, you know, explaining everything, but not really explaining it in a way that's witty, because mm. they've he and uh, um, Jim Payne, that's his, yeah. his his creative partner, have used voiceover very creatively in the past. Um, about Schmidt, they use it a lot, but, but they kind of there, it, it's very wittily done because it's all about um, it's all about Schmidt. Uh, it's all about Jack Lick- Nicholson's um, character. Sort of writing these letters to uh, a a child in Africa somewhere. I want to say yes, um, it is yeah, and uh, essentially lying subtly about his life. Um, and you know, you you kind of get the details of his life. The fact that he's got a daughter, but you also know he's kind of lying about his relationship with her, uh, or or that he doesn't quite fully understand their relationship. So it's a very it's a very clever way of getting exposition out of there in a sort of like a slightly sideways approach, not like the mm. film Sideways, um, which I don't think has much narration at all. Um, nope. And in in the Descendants, it's very sort of uh, utilitarian. It's there to kind of like this is this character, this is his wife, she is in a coma, these are his daughters, and just kind of does that and explains everything until. It kind of feels like the first 45 minutes is like a previously on, where they're mm. just kind of like saying, all of this stuff happened, and 45 minutes in, it's like, ah, and now the story starts. Um, yeah, it never really I, recovers from that, does it? No, I mean, I liked the last half a lot. I think the last half of that film's very, re- pretty strongly, it ends fairly well. And I think that that's why, my, why I, I like it a lot, more than you do. Um... But yeah, that first half where it's, it feels that it has to constantly explain itself, and the fact that it does it in a way that's not that um, sort of interesting. If you compare it to sort of like Jason Reitman's Up in the Air, which uh, also features George Clooney and also has a fair bit of narration, there the narration's kind of got a little more of a bite to it, and a little more, um, it's kind of a, a little more interesting in the way it gets the information across. And I think that's what's missing from the Descendants is that there's not a huge amount of, of bite to it, which is not something that you would usually think of um, Alexander Payne because his films are are very um, that they are quite scabrous in a in a really accessible way. They kind of put a very uh, a very light-hearted face on sort of very bleak uh, worldview. And I think that that's uh, that the Descendants is that, but it doesn't have the worldview really. Um, have you got any other films that you? I mean, I've I've kind of gone through my uh, you know you know, my stinkers, the films that kind of disappointed me. I mean, we talked a bit about Brave um, uh, on the kind of previous episodes, so we won't kind of go too much more into that. But is there any other films you can think of that you know just didn't work for whatever reason, or were just kind of? really ill thought out uh, things that had all the best of intentions but just turned out to be a total mess um, the only one I can think of is a film that's not been released yet so I'm not sure if I'm allowed to talk about it <laughs> no, no you're not, you're embargoed yeah, but I probably tell you, am embargoed it's a loaded question because I've got one that fits the exact specific profile <laughs> um, which was a film called um, Seeking a Friend for the End of the World oh yes, yeah it's a, for those of you who don't know it's a um, comedy uh, starring Steve Carell uh, and Kira Knightley as two people who live in kind of the flat above each other but they've never spoken to each other and the end of the world is going to come there's a meteor on the way to wipe out all humanity and they decide to go on a road trip to find 
they escape a kind of a mob in L- uh, I think it's LA and then they drive cross country to find uh, Steve Carell's uh, long lost love and it is I mean I would definitely definitely recommend to everyone listening to this watch it because it is so uh, fucked up tonally <laughs> it is it is kind of next to unwatchable <laughs> it, there is just the most uh, kind of uncomfortable and awkward shifts in tone uh, that happen not even between scenes but during scenes like there's a bit where they, they get picked up by a hitchhike uh, sorry they get picked up by a driver um, played by William L. Peterson and uh, it's kind of a bit funny and they think he's a serial killer and then he just gets shot in the face in really grisly fashion and then they deal with that and then there's like a bit where they bury him and realise that the car keys for his car are still in the body's pocket and that's really funny, but it's not like funny in a kind of that dark funny way. It was just like I don't really know what I'm watching type way. And it's got more cameos than you could ever, ever think of. All the people who are in it are kind of some of them are literally in it for just like half a scene or you know a line of dialogue or whatever. It's basically anyone who's been on Comedy Bang Bang is in it. Um, um, but it's nowhere near as good as that sounds. And the end is really bleak. Well, it is obviously the world ends, um, but it's horrible. It's terrible. It, uh, it was just beyond comprehension that film but watch it by all means it, it definitely sounds uh, very interesting um, I've, I've heard uh, some very sort of passionate defences of that film but at the same time I've heard pretty much exactly what you've said that on the one hand it's kind of this uh, you know this comedy about people you know kind of like finding each other right at the very end of the world but at the same time it's about the utter sort of chaos and destruction of the world ending which mm. does sound like an interesting combination to me, like melancholia with gags, but at the same mm. time uh, also sounds like something that would just be so utterly bizarre uh, that it probably would stop just short of being good. Which, yeah. is quite, which is kind of the same way I felt about another film that, from this year, uh, Tim and Eric's Billion Dollar Movie. Oh which, yeah, I'm a uh, big fan of Tim and Eric, but I hear this film is not good. Ah, it's so it's so weird. All of the really Tim and eric stuff in it, like where they, they really they, they do their kind of spoofs of low-budget, late-night TV advertising, is great, mm. um, as it would be, because that's the stuff that they kind of perfected on TV. And there are sort of these moments of really surreal beauty in it, like there's a... The, the whole plot of it is that they um, make a movie that costs a billion dollars, uh, and then they have to go on the run from the film producer, played by... Um, oh, crap. Um, sorry, I'm going to have to look up who who plays him. It's a, it's like an oh. old-school Hollywood actor you really wouldn't think would show up in Tim Eric's billion-dollar movie. Is it... Uh, well, we can turn this into a little quiz. Is it Ernest Borgnine? No. No. Is it... Uh, Warren Oates? I'm just going through the wild bunch. He's dead. No, I can't... No. Yeah, it can't be him. Uh, is it uh, Tommy Chong? No, I can tell you three films that he's in. And I think that will that will help you out. He's in Scarface. Robert Loggia. Yeah, it is Robert Loggia. Oh, brilliant! Amazing. Uh, Robert, Robert Loggia, who is um, who is is very committed to his role as the guy who's in charge of the studio, and then sort of chases down Tim and Eric when they skip town. So why is this film bad again, Ed? It sounds amazing. It's it's just that all of the like little moments of weirdness in it are counterbalanced by this really lazy plot that kind of they have to string it together. And you can understand why, because their aesthetic, their, their full-on aesthetic would not work over 90 minutes. Mm. It would be it would be Rating. horrible <laughs> to sit through. But um, And it was horrible for Roger Ebert, who um, I think gave it half a star. Wow. Um, he, he really hated it. Um, and I can understand why, because like all of the really grating stuff is in there. But you know, for someone who's attuned to their particular style, it's really funny. Um, but in the case of, of Tim and Eric's billion dollar movie, like the, the the framing device that they use to kind of bolt on all of this weirdness is so, to me, so lazy and boring that it's kind of hard to it's 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 a kind of a drag to get through to all the moments of like. Of oddness, um, but you know there are there are some good gags in it. But it's just I I would recommend people who like Tim and Eric to watch it because I think there's enough there's enough good stuff in it to justify uh, checking it out. But it's also the sort of thing where if if people were like 
Uh, I don't really want to commit to watching a whole series of Tim and Eric. Maybe I'll check out what their film work is like. They they would be they would be disgusted by it. It's just so so ramshackle. Right, let's wrap this up now, Ed. Um, um, quickly, just shout out anything, any films you've seen that are rubbish, and um, we'll get rid of all this negative energy so we can get onto our kind of um, lightly massaging and bat rubbing our favourite films. Uh, Dark Shadows, that was shit. Oh, Dark Shadows was terrible. Although Frank Mini was very good. Oh, Tim yeah, had, had a very average average year. Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, Wrath of the Titans was shit, but it made um, it? Clash of the Titans look like Citizen Kane. So it's got that going for it. Yep, that's it. So right now we've expunged all our bad vibes. Um, we can feel free to um, move on and talk about the greatest films of 2012 in our very next episode, which will be with you lucky people in a matter of days. Um, so until then, uh, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Bye.